Heathens, beware. The end is nigh. You must repent to ascend to his heavenly kingdom. You must surrender to the joys of self-flagellation, the ecstasies of divine punishment, and the all-consuming wrath of that mean old daddy in the sky. Throughout his career, John Waters has always been heavily invested in subverting the myriad hypocrisies of Catholicism. Both 1969's Mondo Trasho and 1970's Multiple Maniacs explore the sins of the flesh and the delicious corruption of the soul, bringing an altogether different meaning to the concept of the passion play. Waters' sacrilegious pageantry has rich philosophical precedent, particularly in Jean Genet's 1943 debut novel, Our Lady of the Flowers, which Genet wrote while incarcerated to assist in his prolonged feats of masturbation. In the novel, a drag queen named Divine dies of tuberculosis and is canonized as a result. In this literary universe, Genet performs a transvaluation of all values, a theory first introduced by Nietzsche, in which betrayal is the highest moral value, and murder is an act of virtue and sexual appeal. Sounds familiar, don't it? Nowhere is this generous intermingling of the sacred and the profane more evident than in Multiple Maniacs' infamous rosary sequence, where Ming Stoll gives Divine a true spiritual awakening. Although lesbianism has never really appealed to me, there was still a, an aura about her that attracted me to her, even in all my distaste for such perversions. I felt that if I cooperated with this mysterious woman, I could somehow benefit spiritually from the experience. Little did I know what she had in mind. I felt her hand reach down and touch my leg, not at all casually, and I realized it was too late for social introductions. This lady had a grip on me that even now I find it hard to describe. She kissed me as if Christ himself had ordered every move of her experienced tongue. It was suddenly, I was suddenly uncontrollable. And although she had only said seven words to me, these words proved to be the key to the most satisfying sexual experience of my entire life. Think about the stations of the cross. Think about the stations of the cross. Think about the stations of the cross. It was then that I realized that she was using her rosary as a tool of erotic pleasure. Oh, oh she made me get into a kneeling position. Oh, oh, oh. My head was spinning. And all at once, she inserted her rosary into one of my most private parts. Although his fascination with organized religion never truly dissipated, John Waters' depiction of unapologetic deviant behavior in 1972's Pink Flamingos marked a watershed moment in queer representation and filmmaking audacity, followed by the jubilant criminality of female trouble and the lesbian separatist fairy tale of desperate living, Waters' trilogy of filth to this day remains a provocative condemnation of respectability politics and an acerbic critique of homonormativity. 
how do talking anuses, slaughtered chickens, visits to members of the Manson family, mother-daughter striptease routines, and unsimulated blowjobs contribute to an independent filmmaker's rise to international acclaim? Let's hitchhike to the quaint outlaw shantytown of Mortville to find out. We might pick up some depraved stragglers along the way, like avant-porn provocateur Bruce LeBruce, Heterosexuality is the opiate of the masses! And performance artist Paul Swallow, otherwise known as Christine. I come from the dirt, from the wood, from your brain, from your darkness. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones, and this is Pure Garbage, an oral examination of John Waters. Presented by Wussy Magazine, in collaboration with OutTV and Double Scorpio. Whether asking for absolution in a good old-fashioned non-sploitation saga, or begging for forgiveness over a steamy episode of Mormon Boys, Double Scorpio will open you up nice and wide to the righteous path of cinematic salvation. Hallelujah, Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose. Double Scorpio. Pure Garbage, Episode 3. Sweet Bird of Filth. Yes, folks, this isn't any cheap X-rated movie or any fifth-rate porno play. This is the show you want. Lady Divine's Cavalcade of Perversions, the sleaziest show on earth. Not actors, not paid imposters, but real, actual filth who have been carefully screened in order to present to you the most flagrant violation of natural law known to man. These assorted sluts, fags, dykes, and pimps know no bounds. They have committed acts against God and nature, acts that by their mere existence would make any decent person recoil in disgust. You want to see them, and we've got them. Every possible thing you can think of. The Cavalcade of Perversions, announced by David Lockery in Multiple Maniacs, includes a puke eater and a heroin addict in the midst of withdrawal symptoms amongst its many lurid attractions. The show eventually devolves into mayhem with the appearance of headliner Lady Divine, who robs and murders the hoodwinked spectators for the sheer thrill of it all. You will not be injured as long as everyone cooperates. Kindly hand over all wallets, jewelry, handbags, any fur items, all loose change, and any narcotics you may be carrying. We'll cooperate. The first person to give anybody any shit will be immediately eliminated. She's sick. We'll never get out of What did you say? I said you're sick and repulsed. And you, my dear, are dead. I said you're sick, my man. The grand proclamation of the carnival barker. The step right up and feast your eyes, folks, approach to show business, epitomizes the feverish thrust of John Waters' entire filmography. The circus has long been a microcosm of otherness, where the marginalized and disenfranchised seek refuge. Come on, come on in. You got about three minutes now left to catch the puke eater. He'll lap it right up for you. He loves it. 
sounds weird. It is. Weird. It's sickening. I'm not going to Pine Street to see someone puke. Yeah, but they got puke eaters, lesbians, mental patients and stuff. Come on, come on. You'll see two actual queers kissing each other like lovers on the lips. These are actual queers. The Atrocity Exhibition, to borrow a phrase from dystopian fiction writer J.G. Ballard, was on full display and free of charge, holding a mirror up to the unsavory impulses swimming beneath the surface of American propriety, and the sour vibes percolating under the free love movement, which imploded in the national consciousness after the Tate-LaBianca murders. They called themselves The Family. They came and went, and the number varied from 20 to 30. Police said they were a pseudo-religious cult. People who worked on the ranch said they were heavy users of drugs. They were constantly taking dope and stealing cars and just, they just sit around all day and sleep and that's about it. And they went around collecting garbage and had that for dinner and went to the store once in a while. And that was about it. They just slept and got loaded. Waters was no stranger to sensationalizing American tragedies. He'd already restaged the Kennedy assassination in Eat Your Makeup, and after that he critiqued the media coverage of a widely publicized teenage suicide in the Diane Linkletter story. In Multiple Maniacs, Devine proudly takes credit for the Tate-LaBianca murders, a decision John Waters later regretted after teaching a series of film classes to incarcerated individuals. You know, you're very weird, and you like, you know, you're a weird guy. I guess. I'm weird, too, yeah, so yeah, I can yeah, say yeah, that right. you. We understand each other. Yeah. Right, yeah. But how weird are you that you go teach film appreciation in prison? Well, I... He did that. See, I think it's, you know, I like being in prison one day a week. I mean, have you ever been arrested? Do you go visit serial killers and stuff like that? No, 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 no. I had a few in my class, you know. I mean, I, I, I you know, I did, it's rude jail etiquette to ask. Later, at the end of the year, they did give me a, a thing, a certificate of bad taste, the professor, where they all signed their crime and their time, and they were serving, like, 2,000 centuries or something if you add it up. But you time. went to visit Tex Watson. Oh, well, that was a long time. That's a whole different thing. That's a whole different thing a oh. long time ago you know I, I do believe in rehabilitation and I do believe that I didn't know we we're gonna talk about this tonight so I, I'm not saying it for shock value but no. that one of the Manson women is um, rehabilitated totally and I believe that she should be let out yes you do I do I wanted to interview Leslie for Rolling Stone and I wrote to her and she said that uh, she did not want to be in magazines because of what she had done so she said but if you want to be friends uh, if you're in a hurry, it's not going to work. So we became friends over 28 years. She was a 17-year-old hippie. She met one of the most notorious madmen of this century in one of the most volatile times ever. She was a hippie looking for some sort of spiritual leadership. And he was a pimp, uh, much older, and got out of jail. And he really was a con man. And by the time this terrible crime happened, it was too late. She did not go the terrible Sharon Tate night. She did go the second night, and she accepts full blame for it. She certainly looks back on it now with horror, really, and complete shame. But that is what she did feel at the time, 40 years ago. And as she said, she has spent the last 40 years becoming the person she would have been if she had never met Manson. In the early days, petty crime was always a part of the Dreamlander's itinerary. To fund their prolonged stays in Provincetown, which became a second home to many of them, the gang would pull off a colorful assortment of grifts and schemes to gather some quick cash. John would shoplift and sell diet pills. Mary Vivian Pierce would steal bicycles for a discreet clientele. 
Mink would dress in disguise to pull off complicated credit card ripoffs in Boston. David Lockery would get kitchen jobs in restaurants where he would throw himself to the floor in fake accidents to collect insurance money. And Devine was once accused of stealing an ornate chandelier from the Chinese embassy in Washington, a claim he tepidly dismissed as fraudulent. John Waters would later say that once Pink Flamingos became a hit, all the Dreamlanders seemed to snap out of being juvenile delinquents. We had a budget of $200 for Pink Flamingos. A hundred we bought the burnt out trailer for, and a hundred to fix it up and paint it, plus our, our other props. And when we ran out of money, we would just steal things. It was very cold. <laughs> we shot in the middle of winter, and it, they see there's no leaves on the trees, and you can see your breath. Devon's in a really skimpy outfit. Believe me, there wasn't a self-respecting drag queen from here to San Francisco that wanted anything to do with that look that there was. I mean, Devon was a terrorist, basically, a drag terrorist. Edith always had some really good speed. We'd split that up so there was no need for food, just cigarettes. <laughs> there was no catering on pink flamingos. I don't think, I don't think we were provided with one morsel of food the entire time we were filming Pink Flamingos. I really don't. I think maybe, I, I don't even remember having a bologna sandwich on the set, to tell you the truth. Pink Flamingos is a very American film. It was billed as an exercise in poor taste, and I like the understatement. It deals with very American subjects, competition and war. It concerns two groups of outcasts vying for the title of filthiest people alive. On one side, we have Divine, the queen of sleaze, and her troubled family. Crackers, her demented hillbilly hippie son, played by Danny Mills. Cotton, her bleach blonde, glamorous, and voyeuristic traveling companion, played by Mary Vivian Pierce. And Mama Edie, Edith Massey, a 250-pound senior citizen who sits in a playpen dressed in a girdle and bra and worships eggs. Oh, Beth, I'm starving to death. Hasn't that Eggman come yet? I love that Eggman so much. The challengers to the title are Connie and Raymond Marble, Mink Stoll and David Lockery. We feel that Raymond and I far surpass her in every aspect of the term filth. As you know, we run a baby ring. Oh, it's really a very simple process. We keep two girls at all times who are impregnated by Channing, our rather fertile servant. We sell the babies to lesbian couples, and then we invest the money in various businesses around town. We own a few pornography shops, plus we front money to a chain of heroin pushers in the inner city elementary schools. The Divine family is trying to live quietly, knowing that they are indeed the filthiest people alive. But the Marbles attempt to seize this title by sending them a turd in the mail and burning their trailer to the ground. Burn, you fucker! Burn! Vincent Perenio, the art director for all my films, understands perfectly the shabby look I love. We began searching for the ideal trailer, but only had $100 to spend, which severely limited the selection. We finally located one we could afford, a mere shell of a mobile home that had been burned to a crisp in a fire. A good friend, Bob Adams, known in Baltimore as the Psychedelic Pig, lived in a commune of draft dodgers, drug dealers, and homosexuals in a decaying country mansion and gave me permission to build the trailer set on the property, back in the woods away from the prying eyes of his rather snooty neighbors. Vince went to work on it immediately. The walls and ceiling were restored, sometimes only with cardboard, but once the charcoal gray and pink paint went on, who could tell? 
A flamingo is traditionally known to symbolize harmony or balance, a fact that Waters utilized ironically when naming his decidedly off-kilter film. He wanted the title to be innocuous, something that your grandparents could mistaken for a wildlife documentary. The pink flamingo is then, in fact, a red herring. It is no coincidence that flamingos are often hung in the windshields of RVs to indicate the presence of a couple that likes to swing. This title established a high standard for deceptive labels and shock media, for all the tub girls and the lemon parties that were to come. Unsurprisingly, the film was challenged by local and international censors, and was banned in Australia until 1984. The scene in which Divine's character Babs Johnson gives an authentic blowjob to her on-screen son Crackers proved to be the most divisive, not to mention the talking anus performance or the bestial coprophagia. Baltimore's favorite porno-fighting grandma Mary Avera was on Waters' case once again. She says things to me like, get a haircut when I had long hair. I feel like saying, well, take that pantsuit off and that wig hat. You know? <laughs> but uh, she watches the films three at once because she can't cut dialogue. She can only cut because of the First Amendment. And she sits with a microphone and yells to this like projectionist, cunnilingus, real one, <laughs> rear entry. That was my favorite when she said rear entry. You know? and, uh, and then so I had to argue with her. You know, and she's incredible. She says, why don't you make the sound of music? Who would see these films? You know, I mean, and it sounds real funny, but when you deal with her, uh, she, if you say anything, she says, don't break bad with me. <laughs> and she calls you huge, you know, and you think, what? <laughs> has, has she actually cut your films? Oh, yes, yeah, she cut 10 minutes of Pink Flamingo. She cut one foot in Female Trouble, which made no difference. Nobody would even be able to tell. Right. But it ruins the whole print. It makes a sound jump, and they have terrible projectors. So you give them a brand new print, and it gets, comes back with a scratch on it and everything. Here's a little bit more from Divine on that pivotal poop scene. Well, here's my question. Did you rush off to an emergency room afterwards? Well, no, <laughs> I went home. It's a silly question, but I, I'd be wondering about, you know, uh, well, germs I'm, and things like well, that. Well, I know. I had mouthwash and things, and, mm -hmm. then, and I brushed my teeth and <laughs> goggled. Anyway, I went home, and I was sitting there. And the more I thought about it, then I started to worry. So I called the hospital, and I'll never forget this. And I, could, I didn't know what to tell them, you know, because I was a bit old running around eating dog feces, you know. So I called and I said, to, oh, hello, this is Mrs. Johnson and my son just did dog duty and, and what should I do? <laughs> and she said, well, how old is your son? And I said, well, he's you know, 24 years old. Said, well, then the nurse got she said, some maniacs on the phone here. Your son's 24 and he's eating dogs. So... Uh, she said, well, you just have to wash his mouth out and, you know, do all this. She said, but feel his stomach every day because the, he could get what was called, the, you know, like a worm, a white worm. <laughs> and every day I was feeling my stomach to see if it would Finally one day it got hard and I thought, oh, my God, I've got it. But I had hysterical white worms as it was. I didn't have anything. Waters has stated numerous times that the sequence at the end of the film where Divine gleefully devours dog shit was a surface-level shock tactic and nothing more. But Waters has also mentioned his perpetual disdain for mission statements and pretentious explanations. It is in direct dialogue with the shit-eating featured in Salo or 120 Days of Sodom, directed by Italian maestro Pier Paolo Pasolini. Although the shit in Pasolini's film was in fact orange marmalade, it had a lasting impact on the young Waters. 
In Salo, the shit is forced down captive children's throats by sociopathic libertines in a palatial estate. It is one of many barbarous acts illustrated by Pesolini in an effort to convey the visceral horrors of fascism to the audience. In Pink Flamingos, the act is consensual, defiant, and deliberate, a gesture of anarchy that points towards alternative modes of gender expression and individual autonomy. Actress Elizabeth Coffey has the following to say about her experience on the set of Pink Flamingos. John came to me and said, I have an idea. And he told me about the scene, and I don't know whether you're familiar with it or not. In, in telling me about the scene and that there was a flasher and um, that I would ultimately be a flasher, it occurred to me that at a time when we're going back far enough that, you know, even the word transgender, I'm not even sure if it existed. And even though as a form of armor, my looking good and acceptable helped, one could still be the brunt of some jokes. And what occurred to me with what John was doing was that instead of being the joke, I got to make the joke. I got to win. And that appealed to me. Pink Flamingos remains a remarkable feat of low-budget ingenuity and determination, while still managing to scandalize jaded contemporary audiences accustomed to binge-watching the homogenized pabulum of streaming services. As of 2021, it has the distinct honor of being one of the most controversial films to ever be selected for preservation by the Library of Congress. Now it's time for Cookie's Corner, in which the poet Kay Gabriel invokes the renegade spirit of writer, actress, and dreamlander Cookie Mueller by reading from her recently reissued collection, Walking Through Clear Water in a Pool Painted Black. It's Cookie's Corner. The following passage shows how the production of Pink Flamingos put a strain on Cookie's family relations. Before we started shooting Pink Flamingos, I was living in Provincetown with two-month-old Max and Tom O'Connor. Max and I were staying with my mother in the Baltimore suburbs for the duration of the filming, but it wasn't turning out well living there with Mom and Dad. My mother knew there was filming going on, but I didn't tell her Max was one of the stars. Cast as a newborn infant, bought by a lesbian couple. He certainly didn't tell her I was going to have to fuck a chicken. Let me read the script, she'd say all the time. Uh, well, I don't have the script here. I left it on the set. Then tell me about the movie, about your part, she'd say. Not much to tell. It's a story of two rival families. I play the intermediary, the spy, I said. What's the rivalry? The criminal families, she asked. How in the world could I describe that film to my mother? A few days later, when John came to pick up me and Max for the day's shoot, my mother stopped me from leaving. Where do you think you're going, she demanded. I'm going to the set, I said. Oh no, you're not, she screamed. I found that script and I read it, and you're not going anywhere near that set. I sat down in the Victorian chair for a second. I was at a loss for the right word, the label that would legitimize the film for her. How could she ever understand? Art! Art! This isn't art, she sputtered and threw the script at me. Mom, hold on, sit down, I said, but there was no calming her. 
She has quite a temper, that woman. And you're gonna expose your poor dear little baby to all this nonsense! This garbage! This is the scribbling of the devil himself! This script! This art script! Ha! Ha! Art! All aboard the Degenerate Express. It's time for this week's special guest. Here at Pure Garbage, we hope to cultivate a network of community and care by harnessing the radical queer power of the putrid. We are thrilled to engage with artists, performers, writers, and historians who are directly involved or have directly inherited John Waters' legacy of filth. I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest this week, Canadian writer, photographer, and underground filmmaker Bruce LeBruce. Bruce LeBruce, along with being a pioneer of the queercore movement, is the internationally acclaimed director of films such as Hustler White, The Raspberry Reich, and Saint Narcisse. Often incorporating hardcore gay pornography into his work, LeBruce blends extreme kink aesthetics with subversive political commentary always finding innovative ways to examine cultural taboos. Please give a warm welcome to Bruce LeBruce. I just got over kind of a bout of kind of stomach flu. So maybe that's uh, appropriate for today's discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Stomach churning, dialogue. <laughs> yeah, or some kind of, there's a lot of like illnesses and diseases in John's movies, uh, rabies or different uh, venereal diseases or whatever. John took me to the, the bar where, where the infamous uh, teabagging, you know, uh, came from and everything in Baltimore. And the very first time we met, he was doing a book signing on Church Street, which is the gay, main gay strip here, the gay village, at an amazing bookstore that doesn't exist anymore called This Ain't the Rosedale Library. Rosedale is like one of the more expensive neighborhoods in Toronto, so. He was signing, a, uh, I think, shock value at the St. Rosedale Library. And I, at the time, was like full punk and with a mohawk and everything. And I, uh, I bought a book and posed with him. And I'm sure I gave him a copy of JD's, uh, my, my queer core fanzine at the time. Then he started supporting my work. So whenever I would have a premiere in, in New York, he, he would come. There was one particularly memorable one. Uh, when, I, when Skin Flick came out in 1999, my neo-Nazi porn film, he and John, uh, Gus Van Sant and Terry Richardson and uh, I don't know, a bunch of other celebrities came, actually came to the opening. And it was at the Anthology Film Archives, um, you know, Jonas Meckes, and uh, it was, which was very glamorous. And the, the one of the stars of the film was Terry Richardson's wife at the time, uh, Nikki Uberti, and she played Camel Toe in the movie. Her, her best friend Heidi was so, so excited by the whole event that she stripped off all her clothes completely naked and just was flying around the, the cinema laughing and yelling uh, as all the people started filtering in to, uh, to watch the movie. So it was a very appropriately John Waters uh, moment. You know, I finally made his top 10 list in Art Forum this year, which was like uh, for me winning it, you know, being nominated for an Oscar or something. Multiple Maniacs is my favorite John Waters film. And I love that that. Uh, you know, Divine and Mink still developed this lesbian, this kind of very almost heartfelt 
lesbian relationship that just comes out of nowhere after she like gives her the rosary job in the church and that suddenly they're like really cool kind of like almost like endearing uh, lesbian couple you know and then and then when divine turns on her <laughs> and stabs her to death it was a much more filth universe but kind of doing the same thing as warhol which was undercutting all those hollywood myths and kind of like redefining glamour for the purposes of queer terror, queer activism, queer, uh, to make queer something criminal, something threatening, and making that part of the glamour as well. What we were doing here with Queer Core and everything, which kind of was like a different version of that as well. It was like taking the punk aesthetic and making it super queer. We all end up pushing it to the level of pornography. So, you know, Warhol ended up making a uh, blue movie, a porn movie, uh, and his movies had very pornographic kind of scenes. And, and John, watching John's work again, strikes me as how pornographic the work really is. Queers often identify with the criminality because they're forced into that position, you know, by society. I mean, first of all, they're they're branded as that by society and homosexual was literally criminal in you know many countries for, for until very recently and still is in many countries and and so it's almost a case of okay if that's what you want then we're you know we'll give it back to you in spades we'll embrace that kind of like criminality and take it to the to the nth degree you know it, it's also just uh, out of economic necessity a lot of homosexuals had to become criminals i mean you know they they couldn't get hired they didn't have jobs they were like economically disadvantaged and so they would shoplift or kind of like figure out ways to scam uh, the system and because they were rejected you know that's why the assimilation movement is so deadening and disappointing because you're just supposed to behave you know and uh john's films and my films and and uh, Warhol's films were definitely not uh, about behaving. Thank you, Bruce, for the friendly reminder to never stop misbehaving. Our next deplorable guest is one hot blast of swamp vapor, a torrent of sludge that spurts forth from the depths of the gutter. Pure Garbage welcomes the performance artist Paul Swallow, otherwise known as Christine. Christine is a raw spirit of ferocious music, unabashed sexuality, and fiery, intimate stink. Praise for her raucous live shows and sneering punk ethos, which at any time could include splatters of piss and levitating butt plugs, Christine is always known to get down and dirty. So I had a good, you know, a small group of friends and we used to make films all the time. We had our VHS recorder and we made fucked up movies all the time to kind of bide our time and be creative. We should we go out and create characters and I always played the crazy women characters. So I felt a really strong connection to this character of Divine who I was seeing in Monster Trasho, who wasn't very divine at all in that particular film, which is rather low key and just kind of wearing, you could tell she's wearing just kind of some shit they put together uh, makeup is not at all in the pink flamingo stages or the desperate or female trouble stages. It's really um, kind of simple the way we were doing. We were going through our mom's clothes, getting their weird shit from the 70s. So we shot a lot of films in cemeteries. Um, we had access to a veterinary clinic and we shot like snuff films in the operating room. 
the thing I liked most about Mondo Trasho and then going into multiple maniacs, but mainly Mondo Trasho was there were like no apparent goals or no apparent mm -hmm. budget. So it really felt joyful and, and it felt like, oh, people, these people were doing this just to fucking do it and to enjoy themselves and enjoy some weird fucking small town living to get by or to keep your head sane or whatever the fuck they did it for. But it was, it was a perfect time when we were also making really strange videos in, in, a, in a small town just to kind of survive and release the demons that were in our head instead of some doctor doing it for us. Yeah, most of the work, particularly with Christine, it's like, yeah, it's homemade. It's like, create it. You have no budget, you know, you have no money. There's early on no apparent goals as the Wando Trasho was a bit. It was really just a celebration of releasing the demons in your head and the urges and all of those things that didn't really fit. So when we would do video shoots, similar to I would imagine what John Waters and his gang were doing was you just pull your friends together and you say, look, hold this, do this, help here. Thank you so much. I'll cook you dinner and let's fucking do this. And all of those early videos of Christine, thanks to so many badass people in Austin, friends of ours, and to PJ's film community, we were able to just Frankenstein some fucked up shit. And then PJ had the glorious golden touch and his skills to actually make it look legit or make it look professional. I would like to think it follows a, a same Frankenstein structure as, as as John Waters' um, early films were, you know, and even into his his middle era films. Um, excuse my southern language, but middle era. It's a difficult way to create work when you ain't got no fucking money, and it's even more difficult when more people start to see your work and want more, and you still ain't got no fucking money. So, you know, you do what you do. I think all of us creative folks have our own process or way of um, exercising demons. I like just talking about them as demons. Demons are good things too. And whenever I saw the documentary on Glenn, um, the I Am Divine documentary, one thing that struck me was, um, it really moved me was that John Waters commented on how much sex Glenn got. And that you could see it that when they were out of divine, there was such a vibrant, glowing personality there. That, I was drawn to the very unique style, beautiful style that, that Glenn had. And the, the earrings, the, the mumus or the you know, shmatas and the, the hair and a really beautiful identity underneath that was very different. And I think many of us, many of people I know who are married to demons are quiet people. We are nerds we are nothing like what the public sees and that can be really tricky and that can be very difficult to navigate sexually just identity wise for self sometimes we don't spend enough time on ourselves we spend it on the the demon and it's a it's a lot of tricks and stuff so divine really inspired me to spend more time on myself and so does john like john's created himself into a beautiful persona, but a, his own person, you know? The joy of decorating everything, not just your work, but yourself. And really proudly showcasing that in a world that probably won't enjoy that. 
is not easily accomplished unless you have people around you like John Waters and like, you know, Glenn when he was running around who are doing that. You know, I always say as Christine, like look for other ponies on the street. Um, everybody's a pony and the world just wants to put you in a barn and shackle you and shave all your shit off. And when you can ride with other ponies and really wreck the streets as Jane County would say, then you're in a beautiful place. So that family that, that John Waters created and, and then learning more about the true identity of the vine and, and the kind of celebratory style they had and the sex they had and the humor that you can see in their eyes um, really offers hope for a lot of us who are married to demons. <laughs> Whenever the bells go off with Christine, my favorite, favorite thing is what I call just a what the fuck situation. When perfect storms come together to create a what the fuck. And it's usually like, what is that? How did that get there? What, what are these people around that doing or responding to? And why am I seeing this? You know, there, a what the fuck is so important because it scrambles the normative structures of our lives, of people's lives. So Pink Flamingos really comes to mind of Divine walking down the street in real time. We uh, really probably were most inspired and activated in the video African Mayonnaise that was with Christine, whereas we really literally were so fed up with it was when the Kardashians had really started, you know, seeping their way into our world and our lives. And celebrity was so fucking, all, all celebrities were like showing off their, their pregnancies and the Kardashians were like trying to paint their turds with sugar. And, and, that, and there was a time when it was like, this is, this is celebrity. Like, well, if this is celebrity, then I can be your fucking celebrity. You know, I'm just the turd without the sugar. The actions that we've, activated in the African Mayonnaise video going all around Austin was again, like, what the fuck? Like, it, we're, Christine's in a laundromat, Christine's in the Church of Scientology, Christine's in the mall. We didn't think of like, oh, Pink Flamingos, let's do that. I think it's just when you have those connections, you, they, they, they go into your psyche and, and it's just part of that. And, and I think most of the work that I find relative to John Waters and his family's work is just a what the fuck? Like, what is that person doing in a church with that other person shoving a rosary up their ass? What are these people doing, you know, in the woods, in a cardboard town, in a city, you know, like what the fuck is going on? And how am I seeing this? And how did this get made? And why is this happening? So I think without what the fucks and infiltrations of normative spaces, we're just gonna fucking die of boredom. So I think John Waters and his family really accomplished that. And it proved also that it doesn't take money to do that. Like a Kardashian would take money and show it off. Like, it's not about that. It's about destroying and infiltrating and creating something so fucked that people's brains can't process it. Yeah, and it's a very particular type of magic, I think, to, to really 
shake someone out of their complacency or their ambient watching practices. And that doesn't happen a lot these days. I personally feel the most activated by the butt muscle music video in your work and like seeing you piss in Rick Owen's mouth. I mean, like that feels like such like a, I would venture to say like an alchemical moment for me as a viewer. Yeah, I mean, that that was a collaboration of several what the fucks, you know, like, and I love collaboration. It's my favorite. I love storms coming together and making super storms and sharknadoes and whatever the fuck you want to call it. That, that video was also an example of what you can do with money if it comes across, it lays itself on your lap. And that's a good example of what happens when Christine actually gets a budget, you know? Um, not to say that we didn't have good budgets for our, our videos with PJ and we raised money, like we did, you know, GoFundMes when those were actually possible and doable and new. So many of our fans and followers made those videos possible when we were um, younger. So um, yeah, but Muscle is a really good, beautiful example of the horrors that will happen when a beast like Christine actually comes across some money. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy that, um, that John Waters is infiltrating spaces. I don't see it as like, oh, it's the award that he's been due forever. And, oh, he deserves all these wonder. I'm like, fuck that shit. The beauty of many of the films of John Waters and, and his crew is not there's no goals to it it's just a release and a celebration and a and a what the fuck it goes against what we're seeing on the machines of uh, how good can i look how much money can i make how many uh tours can i do in and how many sold out rooms and how many this and that i know it, it's like those aren't those are goals that all the fucking world wants you to have. They want you to generate money and put that into the, you know, it's like, ooh, just like shit that away. And yeah, it, it's, it's good. And I just wanna, I'd, I'd like to give a shout out to, to Joshua Grinnell, um, Peaches Christ, and um, who really furthered my appreciation and my love for John. So we brought All About Evil to premiere it in Austin and Joshua came and he brought Cassandra Elvira and he brought Mink Stoll. And we all got to meet and hang out. And I watched Pink Flamingos with her next to me. And while we watched it, she was still grossed out by it and was like, oh, I can't believe we did that. Oh, look, you know, and, and when she saw Christine perform, it was really nice again to see the person underneath the person you see on screen and to sit there and giggle and hide our eyes and just be disgusted by something all these years after she had done it. Um, it's really a beautiful, beautiful moment. Next time on Pure Garbage, we will tackle the rest of the trilogy of filth. I hope you're excited to meet bonafide bad seed Taffy Davenport. I don't have any place to go. Maybe I could go live with those Hare Krishna people. The runaway housekeeper Griselda. You'd better go see about your wife. She's having another mental thing. And the deranged dictator of Mortville, Queen Carlotta. You'll be gang raped by my soldiers, injected with rabies, 
An exile to the streets of Mortville where you belong! Along for the journey will be award-winning writer, dancer, and musician Brontez Purnell, and film historian, host of the diabolically popular podcast Girls Guts Giallo, Annie Rose Malamin. In the meanwhile, loosen your sphincters and boil your eggs. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones, and this has been pure garbage, an oral examination of John Waters. Kamikaze Jones, produced by John Dean and Kamikaze Jones, with original music by, you guessed it, Kamikaze Jones and Christian Ruggiero. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors Out TV and Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Subscribe, rate, and review our garbage on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Garbage Pod. He's pure God.